Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Say your prayers, because this is Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 91, which begins with flares being fired over the desert. And it ends with Furiosa explaining what to look out for from a Caltrop car. Happy Monday, Rick. Happy Monday, Julia. We are here again, just the two of us, to talk about the beginning of the end we are in the opening moments of what is going to dominate the rest of this movie. Essentially a 20-minute chase that will lead us into the last 10 minutes of the movie. I'm not sure that we have properly been enjoying the calm before the storm. Oh, yeah? Yes. The last few minutes that we have covered have been the last time that we are going to have this particular group of people together. It's the last time there's going to be much discussion, conversation, dialogue. It's all pretty much coming to an end. What I like about the sequence that we've just watched is that we've been able to take these characters that fell together in a rough situation, meaning fleeing the Citadel in the first place. They forged these bonds and the sequence is them settling into those relationships. Do you get what I'm going for? Yes, they really start to mix and form bonds with each other, with people outside their own group. This is going to sound weird. It's kind of like a jar of dirt. Okay. So you take a jar of dirt, you fill it with water, and then you shake it up. And there's a lot of things swirling around, a lot of disparate parts. These last couple of minutes have been all of that dirt settling down into the bottom. And so you get these different stratas. You've got Nux and Capable. You've got the other wives and the Vuvulini. You've got Max and Furiosa. They've all settled down to the bottom again. And now it's time to shake them all up. Well, it's certainly time to shake things up. Hmm. Things get real exciting real quick this week. <laughs> Before we get into the excitement, though, talking about the minutes that we just went through in the last couple of weeks. I listened to a couple more episodes of the You Are Awaited podcast, and I didn't necessarily find a lot of new or different perspectives from Yuri and Travis that we didn't observe ourselves. And I think that might just be owing to the quality of the movie, that it was so well laid out that it wasn't interpreted a million different ways. But one of the things that stood out to me when Yuri and Travis were talking about the Dag and the Keeper of the Seeds interacting. This was during the night scene, where the Dag is initially very critical of the Keeper of the Seeds shooting outsiders, planting anti-seed, making that callback to what Ang Herod used to call bullets. And the Keeper of the Seeds, she doesn't reply verbally. She doesn't make a rebuttal. Rather, she pulls the Dag over and shows her this bag of actual seeds to show that you can be more than one thing. At the Citadel, you're a war boy, you're an imperator, you're a wife, you're a milking mother. There's a grand total of one thing that you can be in life. And the nice thing about the Vuvulini is that they show the wives that you can be more than one thing. You don't have to be just the dag. You don't have to be just the knowing. You can be other things, multifaceted. I really appreciate that point of view. Because that's something that is so dangerous about the cult of the V8. And I'm sure there are plenty of parallels in our own society today where you have an assignment and you are the assignment and the assignment is you and there is nothing else. And out in the wild, 
you have to be more than one thing. You can't just be a wife. You have to be a defender and a planter of the seeds and a gatherer of food. You have to be several things. And going outside of the post-apocalyptic world, it also shows that these female characters can be multifaceted, that they can be more than just the tough gun shooter type. They can also be the nurturing planter type from a narrative standpoint, not just a skill set standpoint. That's the journey that we have been on with the wives. When we met them, they were wives. Mm -hmm. And they quickly started to branch out. We started to learn that this one is sassy and this one is very caring and this one is ballsy and this one likes foul language and they started to branch out and show us all those different facets it's been fun it has been fun another thing that popped out from episode 24 that i really had to throw a little bit of side eye at apparently genghis khan used blood bags when he was waging war across Asia and Eastern Europe. It wasn't for transfusions, though, and I looked this up, that in times of desperation, the Mongol horde would slit a minor vein in their horse's neck and drain some blood into a cup. They would then drink that either plain or mixed with milk or water, and then the habit of blood drinking, which also applied to camels as well as horses, shocked the Mongols' enemies so much that Matthew Paris, an English writer in the 1200s, wrote scornfully that the Mongols have misused their captives as they have their mares, for they are inhuman and beastly, rather monsters than men, thirsting for and drinking blood. Okay. The answer to the eternal question, how were the Mongols able to wage a land war in Asia? By drinking blood and milk smoothies, apparently. I'm trying to purely see this from the point of view of a intimidation tactic and not think about how gross it is <laughs> because gross is is a matter of perspective mm -hmm. yeah that's actually the more i think about it the more i think that the grossness is why it works if people aren't adverse to the idea of blood being outside the body then that tactic wouldn't be intimidating then marking your face or marking your body with blood or your horses with blood, like bloody handprints and war paint and stuff like that, that wouldn't be intimidating if it wasn't gross. Right. So I guess it's very effective on a couple of fronts. Yeah. If it works, it works. Yeah. Moving on to You Are Awaited episode 25, they were watching the scene where Max stops the Vuvulini and... As everyone was gathered around listening to Max, and this is specifically in like minute 88 and 89, they noted that the keeper of the seeds around her belt are hanging two gourds. They made a big deal. Oh, look at the old lady. She's got two gourds hanging off the front of her belt. They look like testicles. And they were thinking like, well, what would she hold in those? And my thought was probably gunpowder and bullets. Yeah, that's not even like a great mystery to me. Yeah, it almost seems like obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but just another cool detail that these old ladies have balls in so much that one of the old ladies literally has these two gourds hanging from the front of her belt. <laughs> also something they pointed out, uh, a little bit of a Game of Thrones connection. I know that Game of Thrones is over at this point. Yeah, this might be too old a reference. <laughs> it's our Game of Thrones reference of the week. But Max's plan is essentially the same plan 
that Theon had back in season two, where he and the Ironborn were like, hey, Winterfell is not defended because Rob's off with his army. Let's go and take it over while the only people that are there are like Bran and I think uh, the leader of the guard was like Robert Castle or something like that. Like they were able to take Winterfell extremely easily. So Max is pulling a Theon, you could say. Wow, that is an unfortunate comparison because <laughs> the whole Theon Greyjoy Winterfell thing went very poorly. It really did. Backfired big time and totally bit him in the butt. But getting back into minute 91 proper, we find the war rig speeding through the desert and in the distance we get to see flares that are popping up from other disparate groups around and everybody in the war rig seems rather bothered by these and they're finding different ways to cope. For instance, Toast has a music box, the one that we mentioned during the overnight scene with Melita picking up her hands to her chin and then we start to hear the twinkly music. Mm-hmm. Think she passed it off to Toast. I think so. I suspect that she gave it to Toast specifically for this purpose as a stress-relieving fidget toy. Mm-hmm. And she is indeed fidgeting with it, although I believe she is turning it in the wrong direction. I thought so, too. I thought so when I saw her doing it. Then when you hear the tune, the tune doesn't really make any sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's because it's going backwards. Yeah, I was listening to it, and I'm terrible at reading music and identifying notes and things like that. So even if I could identify what note is being plucked out as she's turning it and then like reverse engineer it in my head, I just still don't think I'd be able to find out exactly what the tune of this music box is. I don't want to say it's going to be happy birthday because there's more than one music box in the wasteland. Oh, for sure. And as many references as this movie has to the previous movies, none of them have really been that spot on. They're a little bit more obtuse mm -hmm. than this. So I doubt that it's happy birthday. <laughs> now, the dag, on the other hand, is using a different coping method. She is twirling her hands around and doing these different motions and muttering quietly to herself. She, as she describes, is praying. And Toast asks, well, who are you praying to? And she says, well, anybody who's listening. I appreciate that she is asking for divine intervention. But I wonder why now. They have been in very tight spots before, where they have been directly set upon by the war party. And the war party has been, like, right next to them, ready to catch them. And other parties as well, like the Rock Riders and the Buzzards. And never before has she prayed. Well, I think this instance is unique. Because you mentioned the Rock Riders. The Rock Riders were right on top of them from the beginning. The instances they've had earlier where the Horde was right on their tail, like going through the swamp, the place that was the green place, there were other things to do. This is the first instance that I can think of where they actually have this bit of quiet time before everything explodes in on them. So you think this is the first time she has been able to take advantage yeah. of some lead-up time? I mean, she could have been doing this the whole time that they were hiding in the tanker during the buzzard attack. I don't know. And if I'm not mistaken, that was a dark place, so Toast may not have been able to see her. Or Toast was 
saying something about it earlier. I'm not entirely sure. We weren't privy to that, obviously, but... Mm, no, when she says, what are you doing? It's because she's never seen the dag do this before. That makes sense. Anyone that's listening is an interesting response to the whole who are you praying to thing. We know that there was a giant pile of books in the harem that they had many different editions to read from, and it got me thinking, well, what's the possibility of those being religious texts? And so I looked up a list of the most printed books in the world. Like, this isn't, like, best-selling. This is, like, for the amount of issues that are printed and distributed, these are the top. Okay. Now, this is according to JustAnswer.com. I don't know how accurate this is going to be, especially because the answer is from 2007. So it's over 12 years old at this point. But according to that list, the Bible is the first most printed at five to six billion copies. Right. That's never going to not be number one. Mm -hmm. Right behind that, though, at a huge dump, jump down to 900 million is quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong. And then behind that, the Koran. And then the Xinhua Zidian, which is the Chinese dictionary. Number five would be Thomas Cramner's Book of Common Prayer, followed by Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs. A lot of religious texts coming from five to seven. Those are kind of unknown quantities. And then you get down to number eight, which is, I think, the last religious text on the list, which is the Book of Mormon. And then number nine is the first Harry Potter book at 107 million copies. And at number 10 is And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. So either she's praying to the Christian God or the Islamic God, or she's saying something in Chinese or something more Protestant. Heck, she could be praying to Lord Voldemort for all I know. <laughs> Just based on the probability of one of those editions of however million copies that have been printed getting into the Citadel. Mm -hmm. It's just a numbers game at this point. Yeah. I like the idea of praying to whoever's listening because on the surface, it may seem like she's hedging her bets and just praying to every God out there. Yeah. But at the same time, she doesn't have enough knowledge or faith to pick one. So she's just praying. And my idea of God is the type of God that would listen no matter what method you use to talk to him. So I think she's all set. I think she is successfully praying. Hmm. I don't think that Miss Giddy necessarily had a religious curriculum that she taught the girls. I think she focused mostly on reading, writing, and music and different things like that demure subjects. That's a shame because... On the subject of music alone, religion is a huge part of music. Mm -hmm. And music is a huge part of religion. So if you're only learning about half of that equation, you're missing something. Well, that's partly by design. Joe would want them to be educated, but not necessarily educated to the point of being able to rebel against him. Very true. But along those same lines, the piles of books wouldn't then contain religious texts. It's a good point, which could lend itself to the whole anyone that's listening sort of thing. Yes. If you're raised in a situation where Immortan Joe is your god king, you're like, well, you know, I'd rather pray to a different god king if at all possible, because we are trying to get away from one. We don't want to necessarily try and treat him for favor if we're trying to get away from him. Right. <laughs> so after the dag says anyone that's listening, we pull out from them a little bit 
and we see the keeper of the seeds. She's sitting up against the window and she almost seems to be looking back at them and she has this wry little smile on her face. She does. I like to think that she sees herself in these young women, like what she used to be like. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she sees hope for the future. Maybe she sees that the cause isn't lost, that these are good women who, if their mission succeeds, can carry on civilization in, you know, a decent way. Yeah. So as the war party descends on the war rig, coming from seemingly all points over hill and dale in response to all of these flares that are being shot, we see that there is one car in particular that is gaining closely on the war rig, and that is the Razor Cola. And right out on front of the hood or the bonnet or whatever you want to call it is Slit. He has somehow got his way onto the fastest Caltrop vehicle and is heading up the assault on the war rig. Of course. Of course he is. Because we can't end this movie without being annoyed by Slit one more time. <laughs> the last time we saw him, he was shouting about a boot. He's been hungry for this opportunity to prove himself. So, of course, he would try and get on the fastest car, which I love the fact that the fastest car, meaning the one that caught up to the rig the first, would be essentially the V8 would be the black on black, which is no longer black on black. It's now Razor Cola. I also like that Slit's position on that car isn't a real position. <laughs> he made it up. He doesn't have a real spot. He is laying on the hood of the car. He's the guy who puts gasoline in the thingy-majigger. Hmm. Nobody else has that. It's not a real position. Joining Slit on the Razor Cola, there is one driver and at least... One war boy in the back with this harpoon turret. I think there's a fourth war boy that we can't see. We'll see him pop up later on, I want to say on Wednesday. But this war boy that is handling the harpoon turret in the back, he fires off a couple of shots that sail harmlessly past Jillian, and she emerges from behind this fortification to return fire. And Max actually flinches when he hears the gunshot. Yeah, I'm not sure that they realized that this car was this close with this sort of capability. And he kind of turns out the window a bit mm -hmm. with big eyes. I think they're genuinely surprised to see a car so close so quick. <laughs> and of course, it's this car. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just seeing flares. They probably thought they had at least a couple more minutes before they had to deal with someone specific. Yeah. But the Keeper of the Seeds seems very gung-ho about this, saying, here we go, girls. Yeah, she's itching for a fight. I think it's a combination of she's a tough old woman who isn't afraid of killing people mm -hmm. and hopeful that, hey, if we win this fight, we could take control of a green place. Yeah. And she is the one that loves planting seeds, and so I'm sure she's just itching at the opportunity to plant something and actually have it grow. Yeah. Now, one thing about Jillian returning fire is that it's a one-hit kill. She totally blasts the warboy that was up against the turret. He is now gone. Whenever these Vuvalini are using their muzzle-loading rifles or breach-action rifles or whatever they're using, they're incredibly accurate with them with the exception of the Keeper of the Seas using that shotgun. And I think it's because it's not a weapon that she's proficient with. 
I seem to remember many, many months ago now, when this shotgun went away, we were like, oh yeah, and the shotgun never gets used again. But here it gets used. Is this the same shotgun? You might be thinking of Max's double barrel shotgun. Yeah, I think I am. Because this is the pump action that Furiosa uses when she gets back into the rig at the beginning of the Rock Rider fight. Okay. I had to remember exactly what it was because it's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. But the Keeper of the Seeds is going to take several shots with this thing to very little effect because when you're used to something that is one shot, very accurate, and then you move on to something that is pellets. Yeah. It's a whole different firing practice. So I can see why she doesn't quite get it. Yeah, I don't think that this is an appropriate situation for a shotgun. Not with enemies that are this aggressive. You need to kill them the first time. If you don't, they're going to get another shot off at you, and that could end you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if they were out on motorcycles, great, awesome, take them out. But where they're hiding behind things and they're inside of vehicles, yeah, it's probably not going to be as effective. Now... One thing that does stand out in this minute, at least to Max, is the fact that the car that has arrived is specifically his, and he is very quick to point that out, which I really like. I am fine with it. I don't think I like it as much as you do. I think you're delighted. I'm very delighted because we've had one instance before where Max was like, ah, first they take my blood, then they take my car. What else can they take from me? And that was dumb. This I like. (laughs) because he spent all of those years putting it back together and then they took it from him and he instantly recognizes it as his and so he's pointing out hey that's mine i guess i don't love it as much as you do because it feels a bit out of character for the max that we have known but it feels in character for the max we are about to get to know this week we see a different side of max and i think he has been actively suppressing since the first movie Yeah, we get to see Max take charge this week, so it's very exciting. (laughs) And I think this is maybe his first line of that Max. Now, over on the Razor Cola, the reason that Slit is laying out on the hood is because he's got this little spray bottle of fuel, and he is squirting it into the air intake of the engine. Now, you may remember way back in the beginning of the movie, I brought up a Vsauce 3 video. This whole, could you survive the world of Mad Max thing and this was one of the subjects that they brought up and they didn't cover it in depth which is why i'm bringing it now even though they continue to do this for the rest of the week that engines will function optimally at a very specific balance of air to fuel and so spraying more gasoline into the air intake alters that balance and while it will make you go faster it'll also put a lot of undue stress on the engine so don't rely on it i guess is the rule of thumb in this situation which i think is exactly what slit and the other war boys are doing they're relying on this to get an edge on the war rig yes absolutely and i think nux and max also fall into that same trap out of necessity Mm -hmm. to unfortunate consequences later on in the week exactly But that pretty much brings us to the end of Monday's Minute. We are going to put a pin in this and come back on Wednesday when Max will run out of bullets, Nux will climb out onto the hood, and the rig will get spiked. 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 91 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.